second-class citizenry entangled in the duality of conspiracies, of lies, and of love, of body, of being, too. Elijah Nichols is a 20-year-old genderqueer community organizer. They've been engaging in queer liberation and anti-violence work since the age of eight years old, both locally in their hometown of Muskegon, Michigan, as well as across the United States. They too are currently studying at George Mason University for a bachelor's in government and international politics, to which they say is full of ahistorical capitalist. This conversation is intended to reopen our minds to the possibilities of the future. This is Utopia. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Elijah Nichols. I use they, them, and he, him as pronouns. Uh, I've been organizing since eight years old, really. It started in more like queer liberation, like anti-bullying space. And then as I got older, as I learned more, as I gained more experience in advocacy work, um, it definitely shifted to the violence prevention realm. That looks like doing violence prevention work on the ground, sort of advocating for gun regulations, um, which of course my theory of change and like my understanding of the world has drastically changed since middle school, high school days. Uh, but it's, it's always relied on a lens of queer liberation, even when I was more of a liberal, like this, this vague idea and this vague notion of equality. Um, and I, I, I really, what, what I hope to do in my life um, is really just like be steadfast uh, in this work for a, a liberated future for all. In, in the past, I've hold leadership positions. I'm currently the Pride Alliance president at George Mason University. We do advocacy work on behalf of LGBTQ plus students. Uh, it can be one-on-one -on -one advocacy work. Um, working directly with services on campus, all the way up to doing action items in terms of um, getting folks out of prison or possibly even registering voters. Uh, I have uh, also done things like I was the uh, policy and advocacy co-director for two years and not my generation. And, and we really focused on building out those coalitions on the ground, ensuring that folks understand like it is not only just about gun regulations, it is deeply about the material needs um, that lead people um, to instances of violence because it's because it is really their only choice um, um, in a lot of communities. Uh, so we did coalition work, um, helped roll out a bunch of policy, uh, policy playbooks in relations to abolition, uh, did a bunch of trainings. Um, I'm still doing trainings around abolition and what that means for the gun violence prevention movement um, in, in the lens of class struggle and queer liberation. And of course, um, I'm deeply, deeply involved um, in, in, all liberation, uh, in all liberation fronts that I can be um, just as one human being. I'm very curious. Um, a theme we've been exploring on the show is this idea of identities and how they influence how we understand and live within the world. Um, so how do you think that your identities impact your work? I think a lot of queer people, and I know for myself specifically, I often rely on this notion that my queerness is first and foremost. Uh, but in my day-to-day -day life, I feel as if uh, my queer identity while it is very much a part of me, it is not the full of me. Um, I, I, I really, really truly believe that like the identity that I've been forced into as a low income person, that is something that I experience the reality of day to day, whether that be um, lack of access to food, healthcare, uh, housing struggles, um, that is also deeply uh, connected um, to my status as a low income person. Uh, but of course, my queerness, um, I, I'm in love with it. I'm in love with who I am as a person and how I operate within this world, my identities. Um, I'm a genderqueer person. I am 
a sexually queer person for lack of a better term. Um, but I, I don't know, like I, I really appreciate how my queer identity has taught me so much about way, the ways in which the world works, um, whether it be in a material way, whether it be in this very abstract way of love, of happiness, of equality. Uh, I really appreciate the deep, the deep, deep conversations that I've been able to have with myself. I like how you framed it as these deep conversations you have with yourself. And I think that's sort of like a privilege of being queer maybe is that um, we do have these conversations with ourselves, you know, and it's a side of exploring and getting to know yourself that a lot of people, at least that I know in my life, haven't done yet you know and I'm like come on do it it's fun <laughs> I mean it's not all fun it's <laughs> it's a struggle along the way but but I think ultimately it's very worth it um I, I want to take a second to de maybe define capitalism the big term the big c capitalism I, I think leftist I think right-wingers I think everyone throws around this term a lot of the times without truly understanding what it means other than the textbook definition of what we read and uh Wikipedia or what we read in our history or English classes back in 10th, 9th grade, you know, and I think it's, it's very connected to, to queer identities. Um, I think it's very restrictive of queer identities, but rather than sort of define capitalism um, up front, I think it's important to sort of focus on the two necessities of capitalism, which is privatization and commodification. Um, privatization is sort of the, the, the reality of taking communal aspects, um, communal aspects of our life. So everything from water, from land, to um, the goods that the earth provides and the services that the earth provides to our bodies and to our minds and to our souls. Um, it, it is acting as if those, those communally available resources, natural things uh, are to be made just for individuals. That one person has ownership over water, that one person has ownership over uh, this land that somehow they were granted it by the grace of God that this is the land that I can operate on. So that is the first necessity of capitalism. It is that privatization, is that private ownership. And then the second is commodification uh, because that's where the value comes into play. And for those who obviously can't see because it's a podcast, I use air quotes because what is value? Uh, commodification is the reality uh, after privatization. It is when someone says, okay, this is my land, uh, maybe I uh, maybe I don't want this land right now. I'll make a few bucks out of it. Obviously, it's much more deep than that. There's many institutions um, in a modern world, but it's basically setting a value that you as a private owner have put on this land. The privatization does have to come first um, in order to be commodified though. And I think that's critical, critical. Historically though, uh, we can sort of look at privatization and commodification in, in a lot of ways. Um, we can think about the, the United States colonizers, the European colonizers, the white men that came here, um, destroying native communities, taking land, all for this notion, all for this idea that I have a fundamental right to this land that has been operated on for hundreds of years uh, by um, indigenous people, that it, that it is now mine. I have this innate right as, as a European to this land, I'm going to privatize it, I'm going to commodify it so it is not collectively owned. The, the state owns it now, or the um, colonizers own it. And, and then also, I guess, to sort of like synthesize it all, capitalism is that broader term that utilizes the function of privatization and commodification. You know, capitalism is harsh and capitalism is violent. And like these irregularities of capitalism, they are orchestrating a lot of the suffering in our current 
or our contemporary world and even throughout history, we can trace it back as you were saying. So could you give us another few examples of these irregularities? This is natural irregularities because capitalism is functioning as it should. It is functioning as a way to ensure that the wealthy get wealthier, is functioning as a way so the masses um, increasingly just get poorer and poorer and have less access to those resources. Um, so, so when we use that term, um, it, is, it is important to clarify that it's the natural ir irregularities um, because capitalism is not natural. Collective, collectivization, um, communal um, living, um, communal realities, that is natural right there. Uh, and then, of course, there is the, the, the evils um, of the stripping of our collective nature, pitting workers, pitting individuals, pit, pitting um, our humanness against one another um, to fight for wages, to fight for these resources that were formerly collectively owned. I would love to talk more about the, the ways in which um, queer identity and capitalism intersect and the way in which um, we are commodified as queer people. I, th I think that is another harm, another level of suffering um, that I can speak to as a queer person um, and in the studies that I've done in my lived experiences. Before we dive into queer identity, um, I want to go back to when, where you were saying, you know, um, capitalism is functioning as it should. Like there's nothing wrong with our system that like needs to be fixed. It's like the system itself that needs to be replaced. And I just wanted to clarify that because when you were saying that, that's, you know, how I was taking it and I wanted to make sure everyone is taking it. <laughs> Um, in that direction, like, this isn't an issue that can just be fixed, you know, capitalism is innately flawed, um, in the sense that it is like stripping people of these basic human rights. Another clarifier on there. It's not mm -hmm. just that, like, we're stripping people of like basic human rights, we're stripping people of the naturality of mm -hmm. collective living of these collective resources. So that's the part to me that is the most evil function and the most evil necessity of capitalism, that stripping of, of, mm -hmm. of communal living, of communal health, of collective thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it's so, so damaging and enough people don't admit that to ourselves. Almost everyone born today was born into a capitalist system and, or I mean, I guess everyone today was in America. So we don't, you don't really know any other way of living, you know, you don't know what it's like to live in a communal space where you share goods, where there's a, an abundance of mutual aid and community that's there to watch out for you, you know, you don't, you don't know that. So you take the system as normal and it's all you ever know. And so I think it, it's hard, you know, to think think back evolutionarily to how we used to live, you know, that's part of the reason why I fell in love with anthropology was that I got to know what it was like. I got to understand, you know, these different ways of how to experience humanity throughout history. Um, so now we should definitely dive into um, queer liberation, because I can definitely tell something that you're very passionate about. And I'm, and I'm curious to know, um, what you have to say. So how how does queer liberation, how do you see it as a class struggle? And how do you see that queer liberation is connected to capitalism? Even if we look specifically in the United States, it's really been inundated to us that, that, that equal rights is sort of the realm that we should be fighting for. You know, we need gay marriage. Gay, we, we won gay marriage in 2015, like, and the fight's not over, of course, but yes, this is a, this is a major step. And of course, I'm not going to discount the work that has been done around um, same-sex marriage. But, but when we're looking at what was blocking that, of course, it was under the guise of religion and under right-wing propaganda. When we look at that through, through a class lens, we have to start thinking about, well, it's not just about that union that can be made. It, it wasn't just about that union breaking that down. It was about 
keeping material resources away from queer people, whether that be tax credits, whether that be the availability of movement, because in some states it was, uh, it was legal for same-sex marriages, while in another um, it was not. So you would start losing tax credits. You would not be able to um, have your marriage be deemed illegal in Connecticut versus Texas, you know. It, it was about um, stripping um, queer people, stripping same-sex couples of um, the benefits that can come under under this capitalist society, you know, which is where sort of I get into the struggles of, well, gay marriage isn't really a queer liberation fight. But, but I think another way in which we can look at queer liberation as sort of this class struggle is if we're looking at it from the capitalist context, as someone who looks very, very deeply at class struggle, we can look at employment opportunities as well. In many, many states, um, which now luckily we have a bit more um, regulations on the books, court cases have gone through um, both at the state and the national level, but employment opportunities for a long time were was the biggest struggle for a lot of queer folks, specifically black trans women. Because if we can't have a fucking job in the United States, you know, we cannot operate as as humans, we can't get our food, we can't get our housing, we can't get our health care. When we're when we're looking at queer liberation, when we're looking at queer identities and the struggles that we face. Um, it wasn't just about the employment and letting religious um, discrimination get in the way under um, the guise of straight and heterosexuals, those who conform to this to this notion of womanhood or masculinity. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to material resources and making one group of folks um, and other um, that does not have access to these communal goods and to communal love and to communal um, living, truly. I, I think like a, a, another level that we need to be understanding is that um, from a liberal perspective, like yes, gay marriage, yes, employment opportunities, which is sort of the perspective that I just brought. It was a bit more like, yes, it had that Marxist interpretation of this being a class struggle, but still understanding that things like gay marriage, employment opportunities, it's still in the confines of capitalism. Um, and, and, and what does that mean, you know? Um, it, it still is reliant on the objectification of, of gender, of sexuality, um, the, the policing of that. Terrible lived reality, but a good example for this moment is this idea of passing, which I think a lot of queer people use that term and not understanding that it's such a bad term. Um, and of course I, I understand folks who can use it in some instances, but why is queer people are we even promoting this idea of passing? Why do we need to check a box of this is what um, manhood is? This is what womanhood is. It's constraining really to gender queer people and to trans people um, and to really everyone um, to explore um, personal and collective identity, to explore everything from fashion to voice to art to to love truly i want to bring it back though to talk about western ideology and and western states exploiting um the rest and and sort of unpack more of what it means to like be made a second class to keep it simpler i guess um queerness has existed um it, it exists it existed in african and middle eastern life previous to really the these terrible atrocities and the violence that, a, that has occurred due to christian catholic-led mass murders slave trade, um, colonialism across the globe. So, so queerness has existed within these spaces, but when the white man came in, when, when the neo-Christian like murderers came in, 
um, and, and brutalized these communities, um, it made that second class occur. It said, you have to adapt to what we have defined as womanhood, as manhood, as the family unit. It, it's important to look at that and realize that there is that shared struggle against this unnatural restriction on the human experience. If we go back to um, various stories within the Bible, um, I grew up Christian and I still consider myself a follower of Christ. I don't necessarily label myself as a Christian because of the institutions itself. The ways in which um, queerness was described, um, of course, is debated against many scholars and theologists. This notion that I was taught that like you'll be exiled from your community, whether it be during biblical times or in the now, um, these were these were ideas made present to turn our natural communal um, personhood, natural communal lived realities. Um, into a more private one. Queer people and anyone who shows any sense of queerness, no matter if they are gay to bisexual to, to whatever, really, um, any sign of that means you are not deserving of, of love, of housing, of shelter, of food, of water, of the benefits of a communal society rather than one of an individual. I, I really wish and I really hope that people start to realize that when we're looking at these stories in the Bible, when we're looking at the ways in which queerness has operated, we get back to this idea that it was about creating a second class, taking resources formerly collectively owned away from queer people. So I guess thank you for allowing this platform to be a space to sort of talk about how it is that class struggle about stripping resources from queer people, whether it be trans, genderqueer, um, gay, bisexual, or just queer. Yeah, I think I think really through my studies, you know, I've been able to see how this is all connected, you know, it's like sort of like a big if we're like conspiratizing like it's, it's a big like group of people who have just like set up the system perfectly to benefit the elite class. And so I think it's important that we start to unpack and really identify these things that, you know, we may think about as loosely connected, but really to start having these conversations of what's actually going on here. <laughs> but I want to now pivot towards, um, as we do in every episode, this idea of a utopia and what it means to live in a better world. Um, so could you tell us what your vision of a better world looks like? Does it involve queer liberation? I think utopia insinuates that it is unreachable or that it is never going to occur uh, but I have much more hope than that. Call me um, whatever you want. Um, you can call me naive. If I was to describe a world, I think this world would be, would be collective. It would get back to that naturality of, of human experience, um, of allowing for um, discussion and allowing for um, voice and, um, and allowing for there to be a space, really, for, for queer people to exist. Um, for the exploration of personal identity and collective identity of everything from sex to art to love, um, which is separate from sex, um, to, um, to housing situations, to water not being privatized, housing not being privatized, to, to a communal experience. Of, of, of life, truly. In a more direct way, I guess, it would include uncommodified or decommodified um, housing, healthcare, um, food, water, job opportunities. I guess in my world, it's just moneyless, if I'm being honest, like capital-less. Yeah, like a world where you don't have to like pay money to just exist. <laughs> Literally. Um, <laughs> 
and like I even nowadays you have to pay like thousands of dollars to just die to die in America it costs like seven to ten thousand dollars I think like that is bizarre <laughs> if you really really yeah. think about it it's something else um but also like I think you're really touching on this idea of like bringing back the commons and not only like this physical commons where we have the resources and stuff but like a communal space for discussion too which you know I think like Facebook maybe was supposed to be that but like <laughs> we oh, well. <laughs> but also so I know that you're a member of the Democratic Socialist of America um me too and so what are your thoughts on the what's and why's of socialism? I, I think socialism is a very present struggle. I think eventually we'll get to a place, um, fingers crossed, um, where we can move past the, the very Marx understanding of a socialism being sort of that, like that middle road in between capitalism and communism. I, I think socialism has a lot to do with career liberation struggles because it, it is deeply understanding of the class dynamics that policing takes on, that queerness takes, um, that queerness under capitalist construct takes on, um, that um, Black identity takes on under capitalist construct. And so yes, like I consider myself a socialist in the now, an anarcho-socialist. Socialism is um, the fight, the struggle that I'm engaging in, in every aspect, no matter if it's in gun violence prevention spaces or queer liberation spaces, uh, because I believe it is one of the few ways in which we can properly analyze the world. But also um, that should not be your end goal. Um, it can be the reasons why we're in these struggles collectively, but once we get to sort of this socialist society where we have cooperatives at every level and there's no longer this hierarchy of owning class and working class, uh, we need to make sure that we're reaching beyond that, that we don't just settle for another worker state. We have to move past the idea of the worker. We have to move past the idea of still a class that is being created of the non-worker and the worker. So I think I'm engaged in the socialist struggle. I think it is a noble fight. I think it is the right fight. Uh, but I also think that we need to be open to criticism of social, socialist struggles, of socialist spaces. And we need to make sure that we are working alongside our communist friends, to our vague leftist friends, to our anarchist friends. Um, to just our comrades in this fight for a better world, truly. So a better world, how does socialism, I mean, I guess in brief, <laughs> how does socialism go about creating a different world in a way that's different from capitalism um, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with socialism? Socialism is really just workers owning the mean of, means of production. That is what socialism can be quickly described as. Uh, but it's, of course, much, much deeper than that and much more intense than that. Um, it is it, my vision of socialism is probably different than your vision of socialism, um, than different than my friend Leah's vision of socialism um, to my friends across the globe um, who are involved in social struggles. But I guess my understanding of socialism, what that could bring is sort of the, the more linear classless society. We need to make sure that socialism um, in the sense of we break down, um, there's no longer an owning class, we bring everything back to the commons, we're collectively taking ownership of the workplace, and we're making, we're democratizing every single level aspect of our life, everything from decisions in the house, to the community, to day-to-day um, -day activities. Um, we just need to make sure that we are taking into account every voice. And so my vision of socialism, yes, there's the workers who own the, own, own the means of production, but we can we need to make sure that we don't leave out our um, comrades um, with disabilities or our comrades who choose not to work, you know. Socialism is how we get to sort of that classless society, but still understanding that it's not completely classless because we still have the worker and the non-worker. We need to begin breaking that down. I do want to ask, though, um, a question that, like, I 
often get, I think when I start to talk about these ideas, you know, people say capitalism like gives people incentives to work and they think that socialism is gonna like make people lazy, which, you know, like I have my own rebuke um, to that, but I'm wondering what yours might be. And we don't have to include this in the podcast. Yeah. I'm also just curious, but if, if it comes out good. <laughs> I think it's a, an interesting argument. I think it's a very individualistic approach. I mean, I think it still relies on the idea that labor is what gives a person like value in life you know um that gives them a reason to live and it still operates under that assumption um so that would be like my first critique like are you saying that like all disabled people that can't work are lazy you know um and of course the person would hopefully say no 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 i didn't mean that because they realize it's a very shitty argument um and it's very um insensitive and it's very evil or or um let's say an individual has to stay at home to care to take care of their children or a sick mm -hmm parent or grandparent are you calling those people lazy that are literally like like witnessing and taking care of the next generation you know like are you calling those people who are literally like um like creating your food for when you're younger um or um like taking care of your sick uncle you know like are you calling those people lazy just because they're not getting some sort of monetary compensation for it if you're calling that person lazy who's literally spending their life now taking care and aiding in the the lived experiences of another you calling that person lazy to me that's just like a very sad and evil way to look yeah. at the world what is the purpose you know what is the purpose of of us going to work every single day you know um it is it is solely just because we need to make the the dollar wages you know the 11 dollars an hour the 15 dollars an hour the 20 dollars an hour the 23 dollars an hour you know like whatever it is it is solely just to survive um, and if we take that away, people can start to experience whatever the fuck they want to, you know, if you want to be a scientist, if you want to be a teacher, if you want to be an artist, you'll be able to experience that and you won't be confined um, to what your, your personal, um, your individual capital allows. Um, so to me, it's like, it will allow for the incentive of, of, of real imagination. We aren't going to be confined to what our class has to say about it truly giving people this freedom like that's what we're asking for you know is to is to allow people the space to just be human to just exist to have free imagination without like this daily stress and like feeling like they're so pointless and like life is an existence is so pointless yeah and to even think you know people don't deserve free access to water don't deserve free access to healthcare to food to everything people don't deserve to eat because they don't work like that's just like yeah. <laughs> insanely inhumane uh we do have to wrap up so i want to thank you so much for joining us today i've really enjoyed our conversation i hope the listeners do too but before you go um do you have any reading watching viewing recommendations yeah yeah of course uh so i highly recommend the first season of root causes i'm one of the hosts um it is not my generation podcast we had a great last season where we talked about um everything from career liberation and gun violence prevention to class struggle in gun violence prevention to episodes on black liberation um, to so many different topics. And of course I stepped back for certain episodes like knowing that I just, it wasn't my space to talk. Um, I also recommend the book Black Liberation Socialism by Ahmed Shockey. So anything by James Baldwin. Um, I highly recommend the book Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis. Uh, but importantly, um, read the stories and struggles of folks on the ground. So our Black queer comrades globally. Read about um, the struggle going on in India right now with farmers and workers and the uprising that is occurring. Just stay up to date, talk to your community, engage in the struggle locally. That is so, so critical. It's not just about reading. It's about putting these theories. It's about putting these 
understandings of the world into action um, in dramatically changing um, the narrative in this country and dramatically changing these institutions. Utopia is a lemon jerky production produced by Joshua McLean and Caleb Chrisley. The podcast is edited by Joshua McLean. The spoken word was written and performed by Elijah Nichols, and the jingle was composed by LJ Garcia.